Good afternoon again. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Luke, chapter 1, or you can follow along the same text as printed in your bulletin there. Um, come to Advent time when we start singing our Christmas music. Uh, it, a lot of it is, uh, is sweet. Right? I mean, the virgin sings her lullabies, pretty tender theme, and easy to be moved by that and appreciative of that. Uh, and over time, you start to feel that the whole theme of Christmas becomes that kind of sweetness and innocence. And when you start reading the story more closely and you start listening to the songs that we sing more closely, you see that there's a lot more in them than uh, sweetness and innocence. Uh, there's sedition and revolution and threat. And there's a lot of pushback that comes almost immediately and ever since to the message of Jesus coming into the world. Uh, when people hear us say that Jesus is the king, I'm not sure what they think we mean by it, but I think it comes across like when people say Elvis is the king. You know, it means like he was important and I like him. <laughs> and uh, when people hear us say that Jesus is the newborn king, um, they and we may not uh, realize how much serious political and historical import there is in that language. Um, what Jesus intends to do, what he came to do, is to turn the whole world upside down or right side up better. But what he came to do is revolutionary. Um, and to call him king is to say more than just that we like him. Um, the problem is for him to set the world back right side up means that he has to turn a lot of things upside down. Now there's trauma for those who are in power and who are wealthy uh, as Jesus brings his kingdom. Uh, tremendous changes and subversion happen in the world and in the systems of the world. So in Mary's song, which we're going to look at today, which is pretty subversive, the Magnificat, you hear talk about uh, scattering the proud and the wealthy and toppling rulers from their thrones and filling up the hungry and the poor. And so um, not only for the nations of the world, but for any of us that live in it, um, Jesus Entrance into the world and his intention to reign in the world is a threat to us, uh, that he's come to topple us from our thrones and to show us that we really are those who are needy, not those who are rich. So we're going to look at that uh, today and some of the, uh, the revolutionary impact of what is said about the birth of this child. So buckle up your chin straps and uh, we'll pray and then read the text. Father, we ask that you'd give us um, eyes to see, both uh, to understand and to have uh, hearts that are soft to be penetrated by your word as we listen to Mary's song about your son, our Savior. And uh, we're here because we want to know you, and we pray that you would be here with us and that you'd speak to us and open our lives to you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is Luke 1, beginning at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Have you uh, heard the protesters in Hong Kong uh, singing the songs from Les Mis? Have you seen any of the videos of that? It's very, uh, it's very moving. Um, the song, uh, Do You Hear the People Sing, is, is pretty stirring in the uh, play, Les Mis, in a uh, sort of unspecific revolutionary setting, but in this, the setting in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a protest song for justice, and it's even more powerful. There's, a, there's one video that's been pretty famous of uh, school children who are being asked to sing the national anthem, who instead, and over the top of the national anthem, sing, Do You Hear the People Sing? And it's pretty chilling to listen to and to watch. It's seditious, though. Right? It's protest music. And Mary's song is also seditious in a similar way. It's protest music as well. It's not so much about uh, babies and innocence as it is about the toppling of tyrants and uh, the scattering of the proud. And when you hear her song, I think if you lived in that time, your first thought would be to say, don't sing that so loudly, please. <laughs> right? People might hear you sing that. What do you think Herod will conclude if he hears the Magnificat about tyrants being toppled from their thrones? Well, we know what he thought about it. Uh, the slaughter of the innocents in and around uh, uh, Bethlehem or Galilee. I can't remember. Um, but his response was very defensive and very bloody. Right? He was extremely threatened by this news about Jesus coming as a king. And then you wonder what Caesar Augustus uh, the chief ruler would have thought as he heard these songs because he was one who had uh, claimed for himself titles like Son of God and Savior of the World. And I'm sure he would have realized that in Mary's song, this is a rival claim. This is not uh, a religious sentiment. This is not uh, just a privately engaging uh, spiritual notion. This is allegiance being given to a different king with all the political implications that are there. And that's why the Magnificat has been banned a number of times in uh, Western history. Anyway, in Argentina in the 70s, the, the Mothers of the Disappeared was a group that was gathering uh, nonviolent protesters against the military junta at the time. And they were using the Magnificat as a way to gather people. It was a seditious protest song for them, and so the Argentine government banned the singing of the Magnificat. Um, William Temple, who was a bishop, uh, advised the churches in India at the end of the colonial period uh, when the strong nationalist movements were uh, underway and there was a lot of tension in the air because of it. Uh, even though the evening worship Vesper service always includes the singing of the Magnificat in the Church of England, uh, he advised them not to sing it during those days because it was going to be too dangerous to sing it. So that's um, not really what you think about when you think about Christmas carols, is it? <laughs> Band music, uh, because it's seditious. 
But when Jesus turns the world right side up, which is what he came to do, it means that a lot that's right side up now has to be turned upside down. And so I want us to think about what Mary says in her song specifically about what Jesus is going to do, uh, both uh, in terms of how we look at power and how we look at wealth, because both of those things, she says, are going to be turned on their heads. So first, Jesus has a revolutionary idea of power. Uh, In verse 51, it says, He has shown strength with his arm, which is uh, martial language, and he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus coming as a king is a threat to rulers. It was and is a threat to those who rule. But the good news is he's only a threat to proud people who rule. So, you know, that, that makes almost everybody safe then, doesn't it? Who do you know that rules that's not proud? I mean, what point in life do you have any authority that doesn't make you proud and our political rulers are like that but jesus is a threat to kings who rule in their pride who are puffed up uh, in their role in leading Uh, herod understood this we know because of his reaction with the slaughter of the innocents Uh, the apostles found this out as they preached going around uh, the ancient near east uh, the uh, asia minor preaching about the gospel in Acts 17 they were in thessalonica and there was a riot that came up that was uh, started by the religious people. But the, the claim against the apostles preaching about Jesus and his resurrection was that they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And uh, the Caesars didn't take that kind of talk lightly. They didn't spiritualize that kind of talk. Uh, they understood that this is a matter of allegiance, and these people are, have a fundamental allegiance not to me, but to a different king, Jesus. And it's, it's why kings have generally persecuted the church uh, through the ages where we've seen it, starting with you know, Herod and Nero and coming down to uh, Premier Li in China or MBS in Saudi Arabia today. Uh, assertion of Jesus as king means a threat to the rulers of this world. And it always has been. Jesus is the true king. It's what Mary says. It's what we believe as Christians. And what he says about his rule is that under his rule, the needs of the weak and the poor and the needy and the hungry predominate. Like his concern is aimed uh, specifically and directly at them. In verse 52, he exalts those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Uh, these are you know, priorities in his platform politically. As king, when he sets the world back right, he will exalt the humble. He will fill the hungry. And he will send the rich and powerful away, is what we're told. Which is dramatic language for us, and it's not the language I'm used to using, talking about Jesus and uh, the effect of his rule. But I wonder... Uh, And I'm going to speak politically and not partisanly a bit about this. Um, I wonder what politicians assume when they appeal to Christians for their votes. What do they assume about you when they design a commercial for you? Um, What do they think is going to move you? What what are the landmines they had better not step on when they're trying to appeal to you? Uh, I think for the most part... Uh, politicians can count on Christians voting their pocketbooks, right? Like everybody else, we vote our pocketbooks. 
uh, because that's what's really important to us. And there are good reasons uh, to think fiscally about politics, as you will. But do politicians, when they come to us, think we had better be saying that our approach to political life uh, ennobles the poor and uh, allows hungry people to be fed better than our opponent's view does? In other words, they say our free market approach is the way that we are certain sure going to help poor people, or our status approach is the way we're going to certain sure help poor people. Is that the appeal that they make to you on either side? On, I would say on the good side of this, I, I've seen in my adult lifetime that um, most politicians that want to appeal to Christians say that we had better express concern, at least in lip service, concern for the unborn. Uh, because they think we care about that. But I don't know that they think we care about the poor in the same way. Um, so, for instance, the health care debate. I know what you're hoping today was that you're going to come to church and the preacher was going to tell you about his views of the health care debate. I have no idea what should happen with our health care policy. And if you would take advice from me about that, uh, you're lost. Uh, my question is this. Some people promote a single payer plan for health care. Some people promote a free market plan for health care. Some people promote a hybrid uh, for health care policy. I want to know when they come to talk to you as a Christian. What do they think they need to say? Do they need to say, my plan is going to be the best for you and yours? Or are they going to say, my plan is the way that we can best help the poor people in your community? What do they think is going to matter more to you as a, as a Christian? To get your vote, how do they need to appeal to you? We're going to protect you and yours or we're going to be merciful to the poor, however we handle this, whether it's through the government or, or through the market. Um, my question is this, are the things that animate us politically the things that are important in Jesus' kingdom? You're gonna, you may get to them differently through different political means. I don't have anything to recommend there. I just want to know, does Jesus' kingdom, the values of Jesus' kingdom animate you? Are those the things that perk your ears up when you hear somebody talking about trying to help? And I would love to see that more, right? Um, because the accusation made against us in the in the uh, unbelieving press is that our political tribalism is more important to us than our faith in Jesus and that we're looking at the world and we're even looking at our faith through political tribal lenses instead of looking at politics and the world through the lenses of faith in Jesus. And it looks to the world like our politics matter to us more than uh, our worship of Jesus the King. And it ought not to be that way. If you're spending six or eight hours a day with your news feed or with your Twitter account, you're being discipled by that. And it's a different discipleship than the discipleship of Jesus. So um, now the pot is starting to call the kettle black, and I'm going to move on. Um, so the mighty will be brought down from their thrones. That's regimes of the left and regimes of the right. Because uh, Jesus is not coming to establish a regime of the left or the right. His kingdom is a whole different thing. But in Revelation, the culmination of Jesus' work is that the kingdoms of this world, all of them, including the United States of America, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. 
And so if you feel a little displaced politically as a Christian, you're probably in a good spot. You, know, you probably shouldn't feel too comfortable politically as a Christian in this world. But just notice this Advent as you're singing the Christmas songs um, and singing about the king coming and uh, the prince of peace and all these uh, terms that we use to talk about Jesus. Just think about the contrast that you're describing an either or. You're saying Christ the king has come and that means that my political party and my political leader are not the king. He's come instead of them, not alongside them. Um, Our hope is in Jesus, not in political power. Our allegiance goes to him and not to our political parties or our nation. Our hopes are pinned on him and not on a political party or even our nation. All right, so Jesus comes as a threat. It's it's not it's like money. He's it's uh, it's not you can have God and money. It's you have to have God or money. It's that you can't have Jesus and Caesar. You have to have Jesus or Caesar. They're not both the Lord. And so that's the pressure that uh, these nice little Christmas songs bring to bear on us. Um, But there's also a revolutionary idea about wealth. And uh, that's closer to home for most of us because most of us, certainly all of us, uh, relatively speaking, are wealthy in this world. He says in verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now I'm going to tell you why it doesn't really mean that. Right? <laughs> Don't you hope I'm going to say that? I'm not, why it doesn't really mean that? I mean, it's a spiritual thing. It's the spiritually rich that gets sent, sent away hungry. I mean, not, not, it's, an, it's an illustration, you understand. But it's not. Um, it is an illustration. It's a great illustration to talk about our life with God, to talk about wealth and poverty. But it's not only an illustration um, about spiritual life. Why does it work so well as a spiritual illustration, though? It's because uh, the spiritually poor are the ones who embrace Jesus. Jesus said, those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. Because if you're spiritually poor, you're like someone who's financially poor, and that is you're helpless. And you don't have options, and you can't help yourself, and you can't protect yourself, and you become a charity case, a hopeless dependent. And in Jesus' religion... Everything is a charity case. You know, the only thing we ever have from God is from his mercy. It's what we've been given that we haven't deserved. It's all handouts. Even Mary, who says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Even Mary needs a savior. Now think about that. Even Mary needs a savior. And then when she talks about how people are going to receive blessings from God, it's always by his mercy. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him, not his vindication or his reward for those who fear him. He's come to give mercy to people who don't have any other hope for it. And all of this, at the end, it says, is a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He's helped his servant Israel, verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. Not in remembrance of Israel's goodness and faithfulness to him, because when has his people, Old or New Testament, been faithful to him? He remembers his mercy, the promise of mercy he made from Abraham on that he's going to fix the world by his mercy because he's not willing to squash his good creation. So that's why uh, poverty makes a good illustration for our life with God. But um, 
It works with money, too. I mean, D.L. Moody said God sends none away except those who are full of themselves. And you can be full of yourselves morally and religiously and be sent away by God. But you can be full of yourself financially, too. And money seems to have that influence on us, usually. Uh, Money gives us options. Money gives us safety and hope and a name and an identity. And so um, we don't need Jesus anywhere like uh, what's described in the Bible. Jesus can help us a little on the side, but we're actually fine because we've got things covered financially and don't need him. But Jesus comes in his kingdom and he says through his apostle Paul, what do you have that you haven't been given? What do you have that you haven't been given? I think most of us would say, where shall I begin? Let me tell you about my industry and my good character and my work ethic and how I've applied myself and how I haven't been a lazy person and how I have accumulated wealth for me and for my family for ages to come. Let me tell you all the things I have that I haven't been given. And Jesus says, you're deluded if you think that way. What you have, you have been given. But we're tempted to think that poor people are culpable for their poverty. Um, that they are lesser people, worse people, and that is why they are poor. And we are better people, more worthy people, and that is why we're not poor. And I, I think that temptation comes in our mother's milk because it's natural to think that way when you have wealth. It works that way with intelligence and with influence and with beauty, too. You can be rich in a lot of different ways, but... The idea is uh, what we have, we've been given. And as subjects in Jesus' kingdom, uh, we acknowledge that. That what we have, we have as a charge from our king who said, I'm giving you this to use for the sake of my kingdom, uh, not as a congratulations for being awesome. You're not rich because you're awesome. You're rich because the king has entrusted you with money to whom, and you will answer to him for your money. I mean, that's... That's the way money is described. It's a tool for Christians. It's not something that gives us a name or a hope or protection. It's a tool that we're supposed to use to push back against what's broken in the world. Um, And I'll just say I've watched rich Christians a lot. And if you see people who are really willing to turn their lives over to Jesus and submit themselves to him and they have money, um, it's not an advantage to have money. It's extra work to have money because uh, you're always having to think about and evaluate where to invest it, how to uh, sort through needs, uh, how to use money. Um, you know, you, you, want, you buy a, a house in the mountains, but you never get to use it because the youth group's going up there and they're tearing it to pieces. And all you do is go up there and mow the yard and try to fix what they broke. and You never even get to enjoy it. You know? I mean, it's just money is a burden for Christians. Uh, is my observation. And uh, so don't be so hungry to get it if you don't have a lot now, uh, because it's a job that's given to you by the king to have money. Uh, but the point in Jesus's kingdom about money is that what you have, you've been given. It's not, uh, it's not yours to be proud of or for you to trust in. And you don't have to have it. You don't have to have money, which is great because Almost everyone feels like they have leverage over you because you need money so badly. And if you're in Jesus' kingdom, you don't. He says he'll take care of you. And your money doesn't define you. 
in Jesus' kingdom. You're not a lesser person because you have less money. And uh, you can be free of that pressure. So it's a different idea about wealth and power in Jesus' kingdom. If we believed it and lived this way, we'd be pretty odd in our culture, I think. People would say, you know, those people are stranger than the Amish, you know, who wear unusual clothes and don't use electricity much. Um, because it would be so odd to see people unenamored of political power and unafraid of money. But where does it leave us, though? We've got these songs, we've got these promises, but Rome is still in power, and poor people are still poor, and the proud people haven't been scattered. Where does it leave us? Are these just romantic hopes and notions? Well, it leaves us in Advent, Advent, which is the season of discontent for Christians, right? It's purple, not blue. I don't understand that. It's purple. But purple season is when we complain. It's when we long, when our prayers are, how long, O Lord, will you ignore what's going on? How long until you hear our prayers? How long until the cries of the oppressed are answered? How long... Well, things go on this way. This is the church's Advent prayer. It's a waiting time. And it's an anxious waiting time. It's the time when we feel our discontent. So it leaves us in Advent. But it also leaves us with our songs. Our protest songs. Do you remember the great scene in Casablanca? uh, When Peter Laszlo was there at uh, at Rick's uh, restaurant, casino, and... uh, um, in Casablanca, and the German officers who were there were around the piano singing a German nationalism song. And it was very tense because it was kind of a poke in the eye song because almost everyone who was there was an exiled expat French nationalist uh, uh, under Vichy France. And so um, they're singing this song loudly and sort of boastingly. And Laszlo, who is uh, a man indeed, that goes over to the band and he says, Play the La Marseillaise. And they look over at Rick like, oh, are we gonna, is it okay to play that song? And he goes, you play it, you know, Bogart. And they start, they sing the Le Marseillais and drown out the German nationalists because they're singing a protest song. And they're saying things are not supposed to be this way and things will not always be this way. And we are not going to be complicit in them being this way. And that's what our Christmas songs are. Right? They're protest songs like the Magnificat. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Hey, those are fighting words, aren't they? Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. That's not just a nicey religious notion. That's a hail the heaven-born prince of peace instead of the other princes that rule in the world today. It's seditious talk. Christ our God to earth has descended our full homage to demand. Is what we'll sing in our last song today. Because our king, when he came the first time, came uh, talking about revolution. And he's going to come again to fully establish his peace on earth. Let's pray.